Today we're continuing our series, sermon series, on the art of forgiveness. And over the last couple of weeks, you've heard how God demands that we forgive one another in the same way that God forgives us in Jesus Christ. And then we've heard that the more we can forgive, the more that we can step into what uh, Steve Shipstead called last week, the stream of grace. The more we can do that, the more we grow in our capacity to live and act and be like Jesus. In other words, learning and practicing forgiveness isn't just something we're supposed to do as Christians. It's not just a new commandment or a new law. It's also good for us. It's good for us and for the whole world too. Of course, it's not always easy to forgive somebody when they've hurt you or even to know how to do it. So this morning, let's see what we can learn about forgiveness from one of the best known stories from the Hebrew Bible. Realizing that their father was dead, Joseph's brothers said, what if Joseph still bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong that we did him? So they approached Joseph saying, your father gave this instruction before he died. Say to Joseph, I beg you, forgive the crime of your brothers and the wrong they did in harming you. Now, therefore, please forgive the crime of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. And then his brothers also wept. They fell down before him and they said, we are here as your slaves. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Even though you intended to do harm to me, God intended it for good in order to preserve a numerous people as he is doing today. So have no fear. I myself will provide for you and your little ones. And in this way, he reassured them, speaking kindly to them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy God, we pray that you'll grant us the eyes to see and the ears to hear and the hearts and minds to understand your word and your world this day as best we can. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, you probably know something about this character, this guy named Joseph. Either from some Sunday school lesson you had as a kid, you know, those little Bible colored Bibles or something like that, or maybe from Andrew Lloyd Webber's musical, which was called Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Anyway, Joseph was the 11th son, the second youngest, of the patriarch Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, and he was the favorite son of Jacob. In fact, to show how favored he was, how special he was in his father's eyes, his father gave him that amazing Technicolor dream coat, what we think of as uh, what we're told is a a coat with long sleeves of many colors. His brothers, of course, the other ones, the other 10, 
Um, Benjamin didn't come till later. Anyway, they didn't like any of this in one little bit. They were offended, they were resentful towards their little brother Joseph. And then one day, Joseph tells them about a dream that he had. And he and his brothers in this dream are out in a field, they're gathering bundles of wheat, and all of a sudden, Joseph's bundle stands straight up. And all of his brothers' bundles of wheat gather around him and bow down before him. Well, that turned out to be the last straw for his brothers. You know, they, that dream was bad enough. But now he, he had the unmitigated gall to throw it in their face, to tell them about this dream and these images as if now his brothers are supposed to kowtow to this spoiled little brat. So they decide to do something about their problem, their brother Joseph. They decide not to kill him, that would be too much, but they do tear off his fancy coat, they toss him into a, a well, and then they sell him off to a bunch of slave traders who happen to come by. Then they go and they tell their, their father Jacob about how his favorite son was eaten by wild animals. And then they show him the tattered remains of his robe, and his father weeps. Then Joseph goes down to Egypt as a slave. He's sold off to an official of, the, of Pharaoh, the guy's named Potiphar. And Potiphar, as you may remember, has a wife, a, a, a very interesting woman, who uh, comes on to Joseph. She wants to go to bed with him over and over again, and he keeps refusing. He runs away until finally one day he runs away from her advances, and she goes and tells her husband that Joseph had tried to rape her. And so Joseph is put into prison. Now, just pause for a moment and think about what this guy's life was like. I mean, talk about a roller coaster. One day, this, this, this fortunate son is, he's in the clover, right? He's, he's favored by his father. He's doing everything. But then he's tossed into a pit by his brothers, sold off into slavery. And now, just when it seems that his life is coming back to the good side, he gets thrown into prison as an innocent man. So, if anyone on earth has a right to be angry and bitter and vengeful, it'd be Joseph. But you see, then in the story, the dreamer, Joseph, becomes an interpreter of dreams. This kind of stuff happens all the time in the Old Testament. People become interpreters of dreams. But here, Joseph becomes one. And in fact, he gets so good at interpreting people's dreams that he gets a reputation. And so his talent for interpreting dreams comes to the attention of Pharaoh, the Pharaoh of Egypt. You see, Pharaoh has had his own set of dreams. He's had these dreams which he wants to be interpreted, so he calls for Joseph from prison. Joseph interprets the dreams, which turn out to be a vision from God, that there will be seven years of great harvests followed by seven years of famine. And incredibly, this is something that really uh, 
turns the roller coaster upside down. Incredibly, Joseph is so good at this. He's so persuasive to Pharaoh that Pharaoh sort of appoints him to become kind of the prime minister of the whole empire of Egypt to oversee all the social and economic affairs of the country. Okay, meanwhile, back in Canaan, where Joseph's family lives, the famine is raging seven years later. His brothers hear that there's plenty of wheat to be had down in Egypt, so they decide to go down there and buy what they need, having no clue at all that Joseph's in charge, the guy they're going to be buying the wheat from. So they come to Egypt and they bow down before the man they don't recognize as their own long-lost brother, which ironically should remind you of a certain dream that Joseph had had quite a few years back. And it also might make you think that, you know, now might be the ideal time for a little righteous payback. Like in the movie that just came out called Nobody. Yeah, I'm a really big Bob Odenkirk fan, so I had to go see this movie or sit in my house and watch it on, uh, on Netflix. And let's just say that the movie Nobody, in terms of vengeance, kind of makes Dirty Harry seem a bit like Mr. Clean. But anyway... Remarkably, Joseph himself doesn't demand his pound of flesh from his brothers. Instead, he gives them everything they need, and then, unable to control himself, the Bible says, he reveals his identity. His brothers are speechless, and they're terrified, too, because these guys know a few things about revenge. But instead of turning on them, he tells them to return to Canaan to bring their father and their whole family, the whole people of Israel, down to Egypt to keep them safe from famine. And also, as it turns out, to preserve the covenant that God had made with their ancestor Abraham, designating the people of Israel as the chosen people. Okay, finally, after 13 whole chapters in the book of Genesis, we get to the climax of the story. For 17 years later, after Jacob dies, the brothers come to Joseph with a proposition. Like something out of the Godfather, they want to guarantee their safety. So they send a message saying, before his death, your father gave this command. Tell Joseph, forgive your brother's sin, all that wrongdoing. They did treat you very badly. Will you do it? Will you forgive the sins of the servants of your father's God? Well, with those words, hearing those words, Joseph himself starts to weep. And he forgives his brothers. So what do we learn from the story? Well, lots of things, but let's focus on forgiveness. How is it that Joseph is able to forgive his brothers? Well, first, he doesn't just forget about all the pain and injustice that they had caused him. He's honest about all the suffering that his brothers had, had thrown in his direction, had made him suffer, and he condemns it. But as you heard, the story doesn't end there. 
in pain and recrimination. Because even after all he's gone through, somehow Joseph is able to access and to act on the love that he still has for his brothers. And love like that, tried and true, is incredibly powerful stuff. Now, don't think for a minute I'm going all love story on you. You may remember that movie from the early 70s where there's this line that says, love means never having to say you're sorry. Well, of course it does. Real love demands that you apologize to somebody when you hurt them. In fact, that's a huge part of love's power. Theologian Lewis Smedes puts it like this. Love has two ingredients that make it strong. One ingredient is respect, and the other ingredient is commitment. You know, when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, that means you have to love yourself. Not in some narcissistic, self-serving way, but knowing and accepting yourself as a precious human being beloved by the God that made you and worthy of respect. And a healthy self-respect means setting limits on the amount of uh, abuse you're going to take in life, especially from people that you love. At the same time, though, that divine gift of love leads you to see other people, even a person who did you wrong, in that same light, that same divine light doesn't mean you blindly accept what they did, but it does mean that you try to respect the image of God within them. You hold them accountable for their actions, but you also see at least a glimmer of the potential they have as human beings to grow and to change and to become better, more loving persons. So, authentic love presupposes, it requires mutual respect. And then there's commitment. I mean, the easiest way to avoid a whole lot of pain in life is never to get yourself committed to another person. I mean, that way you might avoid a whole lot of pain. But you're also going to avoid and lose out on a whole lot of love. Both the love you receive and the love you're able to, to give to others. So when Joseph forgives his brothers, he shows the unmatched, unsentimental power of love. He doesn't gloss over his pain or his brother's culpability for causing it. He respects himself and them enough to risk commitment based on the love that they share together as a family. He forgives them. Now, it takes some time. As you heard in the story, 33 years it took for, for Joseph to forgive his brothers. And that's the second lesson we learn from this story about forgiveness, that it takes a while. It can take a long time to forgive somebody. And then sometimes it doesn't happen at all for whatever reasons. But then, maybe one morning, you wake up. And a picture comes to your mind of somebody who did you wrong. 
right now, you're not able to be connected to them in any meaningful way. But you know, maybe someday some sort of reconnection can occur. And in that moment, you take the first step towards reconciliation. Lewis Smedes writes, you will know that forgiveness has begun when you recall those who hurt you and feel the power to wish them well. That's what it takes a lot of the time, one step at a time, for love to find a way to heal the pain even if a few scars remain. Finally, forgiveness involves what Smeads, Lewis Smeads calls redemptive remembering. That is, not forgetting the pain of the past, but seeing it through a lens of hope. The hope that God can do for you in your difficult situation, what God has already done for your ancestors in faith. You know, if there's one core message of the Hebrew Bible, it's that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, his son, and all of his brothers, and you and me too, that God is faithful. That God is faithful to his promises. You hear it in how Joseph forgives his brothers. He says this, Do not be afraid. Even though you intended to do harm to me, God used it for good in order to preserve a numerous people, that is, the chosen people, the people of Israel, as he's doing today. So have no fear. I myself will provide for you and for your children. In other words, he didn't simply forget or pretend to forget the pain just to smooth things over. He put it into the context of God's covenant record of redemption. He interpreted the bad situation that he was in caused by his brothers through the lens of the stories that he'd been told of God's faithfulness by his father, by his father's father, by all the people of Israel. And he forgave, knowing that even if he and his brothers are flawed human beings, with God's help, love can emerge from ashes. It can shed the darkness. And it can survive. Hope can survive the evil. I'll close with this. On the night of November 14, 1940, 515 heavy bombers from the German Luftwaffe attacked the city of Coventry in England. The saturation bombing lasted all night, created a firestorm that burned the center of the city, including the Anglican Cathedral, which was a masterpiece of Gothic architecture constructed in the 1400s. More than 4,300 homes were destroyed, and about two-thirds of the city's buildings were in ruins. In fact, the devastation was so severe that the Nazi propaganda minister, Joseph Goebbels, began using the word Coventry as a verb. To Coventry a city was to utterly destroy it from the air. Well, after the war, a new cathedral was built in Coventry. 
It's striking modern architecture. It was dedicated in 1962, and it wasn't built on the site of the old, destroyed cathedral, but right next to it. The remaining stone walls of the old church were left standing without a roof and empty of the stained glass that had melted during the firestorm. But still today, outdoors, there's an altar located in what used to be the transept of the old church. And on top of the altar is a charred wooden cross made from the rubble of the bombing. And engraved on the wall behind the altar are two words in elegant gold letters. Father, forgive. Father, forgive. You see, the church authorities could have reconstructed the old cathedral in all of its Gothic glory, or they could have bulldozed the ruin and constructed something new on that very same site. But instead, they preserved the roofless ruin as a witness to reconciliation and peace. And the message is clear. We will not forget what happened, but we won't let that painful memory keep us off the path of reconciliation. You know, as it turns out, Joseph, son of Jacob, is the first person in the Bible to forgive somebody else for pain or wrong that was done to him. You know, there are plenty of other stories throughout the Bible of the horrible things that we human beings do to other human beings. But this is the first time when the honest, persistent, redemptive power of love wins out. It's the final word of the book of Genesis. And it's the core of the gospel of Jesus, too. So if you want to follow him, if you want to Follow Jesus, learn how to forgive. Don't deny the pain that you've suffered. Take the time you need to get there. But take the first step and remember the redemptive power of God and let that divine love see you through. In Jesus' name, amen.